You're listening to the Food Heals Podcast. Warning, side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life, an increase in sexual activity, feelings of joy, cravings for kale and quinoa, and a spike in Tinder matches. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to put down the Ben and Jerry's, get off the couch, and take a walk outside. If you experience any of these symptoms, tell your Facebook friends immediately. All right. Welcome, Food Heals Nation. Thanks for joining me. I'm Allison Melanie. Throughout the years, 7.5 years exactly, we have heard some crazy and sometimes shocking stories on Food Heals. So on this series, you'll hear some of the craziest and most shocking stories that we have shared. In the last episode, you heard about a woman who had just 11 hours to escape her abusive husband with her daughter in tow without letting him find out. And you heard the story of an actress who had not one, but two near-death experiences. In today's episode, you're going to hear from two incredible undercover investigators from Mercy for Animals who endured witnessing terrible, horrifying animal cruelty in order to shed a light on animal abuse and change the laws around factory farming. Roll it, Roxy. The Food Hills Podcast starts now. Cody Carlson had heard about Mercy for Animals when he was a private investigator for a business intelligence firm. Moved by their work, he reached out to the founder, Nathan Runkle, Milo Runkle, and before he knew it, Cody had quit his job, grown a goatee, and become an undercover animal rights investigator. This story is quite a wild ride. Working undercover as a farmhand is exhausting. It is physical work. It is emotionally draining. It is intense. He witnessed how over 4,000 cows were constantly kept pregnant. He saw newborn calves torn from their mothers and just left to die or sold for slaughter. He saw how much the animals wanted to play and wanted to be loved. And his footage of the workers' cruelty and the atrocities committed on this farm was broadcast by the media and actually resulted in legislation that changed how animals are treated. That was it. He was hooked. He went to law school and is now one of Mercy for Animals attorneys. Roll it, Roxy. My name is Cody Carlson. I'm 31 years old, a husband, a dad, someone who tries to do the right thing when he can. This is me at 13 with my best friend, pal. Flash forward a few years, I come across this video taken undercover at a factory farm by a group called Mercy for Animals. I had never seen footage like that before. I didn't want to believe that things were really that bad. So I thought about it for a while and decided something. I'd become an undercover investigator myself. I'd get jobs at farms and wear a hidden camera to work each day to record what was going on around me. I know it's hard to watch, but I want you to please stick with me here so you can see what I saw and so you can know what everyone should know. Here is where most piglets are born, in a filthy concrete pens inside giant, dark warehouses. This was Nicole. Sick and injured piglets like Nicole are left to suffer and slowly die. When Nicole died, she was thrown away like garbage. Piglets who don't grow fast enough are killed by being slammed headfirst into the ground or by being gassed to death. The rest have their tails chopped off and their testicles cut out without any pain relief. Nicole's mom, like most other pigs, spent nearly her entire life locked in a metal cage so small she could literally not turn around. Pigs often go insane banging their heads against the bars, or lying motionless on the ground. 
At just six months old, pigs are transported, stunned with electrical tongs, hung upside down, and have their throats slit. And this is Ryan. What I and my fellow investigators saw when we went to work at major hatcheries, egg farms, and poultry farms is almost beyond belief. Because boys like Ryan will never lay eggs, he was of no use to the egg industry. So Ryan was dropped, alive and fully conscious, into a giant grinding machine at just a few days old. This is standard practice in the egg industry. Our cameras rolled as we watched female chicks get their beaks sliced off. My job was to help pack hens into the filthy wire cages where they would spend the rest of their lives. Those that survived often had their skin rubbed raw by the cage bars, or their feet mangled by the wire floors. Chickens and turkeys raised for me don't have it so good either. Most have been genetically manipulated to grow so fat, so fast, that they suffer heart attacks and crippling pain at just a few weeks old. At the slaughterhouse, birds have their throats slit. Many are scalded alive in tanks of searing hot water. Cows on most modern farms spend their lives packed into filthy concrete stalls or crammed into small mud lots. Their tails are cut off without painkillers, and workers often beat, stab, and kick cows to get them to move. What I remember most about the dairy farm I worked at were the babies. The standard practice is to immediately separate them from their mom just a day or two after they're born. Today, many fish are raised on massive fish farms, crowded, waste-filled pools where they're packed so tightly together that they can barely move. And as we found out at this processing plant, they're often skinned alive and cut into pieces while still fully conscious. Even wild-caught fish endure a miserable death, which can take up to half an hour as they slowly suffocate or are crushed beneath the weight of the other fish. I am not going to be a part of that cruelty. I am not going to pay for it. If we don't pay for it, farmers won't breed those animals. So all that cruelty I just showed you, that goes away. Maybe not for all animals, but at least for some of them. You can start with small steps, like cutting poultry out of your diet first, and then moving on to pork and eggs, and on from there. Making the change is one of the best decisions of my life. If you try it and give it a few months, I think you'll feel the same way too. Thanks for listening. So Cody, what got you started in this animal activism world? I know it wasn't the, for, the first thing that you set out to do. So how did you get into it? Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. I, you know, when I was a, a young kid in my, I guess, early teens, I, I got exposed to sort of vegetarianism through punk music and uh, took that on. And that just became sort of a part of my life that I never really thought too much beyond until um Many years later, I guess in, in my mid-20s, um, I was working a corporate job in New York City and uh, I was watching the news one day. A story came on about Proposition 2, which was this, uh, this proposed ballot initiative in California that would have banned a lot of the worst practices on factory farms. And the reason why this was uh, on the news all the way in New York City is because there was this organization I'd never heard of called Mercy for Animals that had conducted undercover investigations of these two battery cage egg farms uh, in California and just revealed some of the most horrific images you could possibly imagine of mm. dead animals, you know, in the cages rotting while their animals are laying eggs on top of them and other horrendous things. And uh, I really thought they were doing really incredible stuff, you know, showing people the truth and, and then really acting on it from calling for people to adopt a plant-based diet to, you know, really trying to change the law and policies. 
so the next day I, I reached out to them. I sent them an email. I was working at the time as basically a private investigator to the Fortune 500 uh, for part of this international business intelligence firm. And as part of our pro bono committee, I said, hey, you know, we'd really love to do some work for you. Maybe you could trace supply chains between factory farms and restaurants or dig up dirt on the opposition or whatever. And the founder of the organization, Nathan Runkle, who started mm-hmm. this organization when he was just a high school kid at right. 15, he called me back a couple of days later and said, hey, thank you so much for the offer. Uh, that would be really great. But you know what we really need are more of these undercover investigators. We've been doing so much for the last year or two with just the one. Imagine what we could do if we had another one. So I knew I wanted to do something more for animals, and I was trying to find out how to do that. This was definitely not what I was thinking of, but I thought about it. I saw it was a really incredible opportunity to sort of do something interesting and impactful. So uh, I ended up quitting my job, buzzing my hair, growing a goatee, and then packing my pickup truck and driving out uh, into the countryside. This is uh, incredible. It was was a wild ride. You know, I went out to California and trained with the investigator, and, and he taught me how to use the hidden camera technology, sort of taught me how to talk the talk and walk the walk as, as a farmhand. You know, I, I spent most of my life in New York City, so it was a bit of a learning curve, but I, I got up and- a This couple- New York City guy is going <laughs> to work in the farming industry and you had to like, did you have to um, change your backstory or anything like that? Uh, you know, it was more of what I didn't say, you know? Okay. So, um, you know, I had, I had experience uh, working as a landscaper. I knew how to weld. I had done a lot of physical labor. Um, I knew I drove a pickup truck. Um, uh-huh. Certainly didn't mention that, you know, like I studied, you know, at UC Santa Cruz and uh, you know, I had a college <laughs> education and I was a vegetarian, you know, so I left a couple of key details I, out. I mean, you have to leave the fact that you're a vegetarian Probably would have, right? they would have looked at me strange. Um, <laughs> I would have blown the interview. <laughs> well, you know, the interview couldn't have been easier. I really got in there and uh, the only thing they really wanted to know was, hey, we want you to walk through these barns and see if you can stomach it because you're going to be knee deep in cow manure every day. You're going to see all these horrific sights. Take a quick look and tell tell us if that's something you're willing to do. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, I just told him, look, I just want a paycheck. Get, give me the job. That's how I got my first undercover job. And this is amazing. That is really something. What was that like the first time you walked through that floor? Oh, God, Leslie, it was horrible. I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. No one had ever gone undercover at a, a major dairy farm before. This is the biggest dairy farm in the Northeast. It was called Willet Dairy. It's not too far from Ithaca, New York, which is, you know, a real progressive hub, but you get 20 miles outside of town and all of a sudden it's factory farm country. Mm-hmm. This place, I don't want to call it a farm. It was a, it was a factory kept, you know, about 4,000 cows uh, really tightly confined in these tiny concrete barns where they have barely any room to move. They're living in their own manure. Um, they're kept constantly pregnant to keep their milk at a total maximum. My job was basically to to repair things as they broke. So, you know, there'd be these devices that would scoop up all the manure and push it into this sewage system, which would end up in a huge lagoon, which then caused all these environmental and health problems for the neighbors down the street. Uh. And then, you know, fixing all sorts of things like that that would break all the time. And, and just being around these cows all the time, um, you know, the first thing I noticed is just how incredibly sweet they were. Um, they would always want to come up to me and, and nuzzle me and get some attention. You know, they were so bored and having someone to hang out with. They were, they were just, they are like giant dogs that just wanted to, oh. you know, play with you. And they were oh so God. full of life. And um, my coworker or my supervisor who had been there for 20 years just didn't, Feel what I felt. So whenever they got close, he'd lash out them and at them and strike them with a oh. wrench or hit oh. them with a frayed cable, and they'd go running away. But then, two minutes later, they'd start inching back because they still just wanted to play. So they were so sweet, oh. and they just didn't get any of this empathy back. Um, and you had to pretend you're fine with it. Yeah. Well, you know, I would tell some of my coworkers, you know, I was like, you know. Phil, my supervisor, he's kind of doing some messed up stuff with the animals. He's hitting them and everything. And they just laugh it off and they go, oh, yeah, you know, 
Phil likes to get real rough with him, you know. He's he's a real sicko, but don't worry about it, you know. Oh. And he'd been there for twenty years, so this was just part of, you know. He's so every desensitized. Day. Yeah, exactly. I think you know when you're around so many animals, you lose any sense of their individuality. They're just something in the way to doing your job. So mm. you know, I mean, I don't want to forgive him too much for what he did, but it really is part of the factory farming mentality. Is mm-hmm. you just stop, you lose any sense of these animals being individuals. Wow. Yeah. So you know, I, I saw him doing this. I saw just you know these cows were kept constantly pregnant. They're constantly giving out babies or giving birth, and they're extremely maternal creatures. And so you'd see these cows get their baby calves get separated from them when they're only minutes old, mm-hmm. and the cows would follow them, bellowing for them. They'd go around a corner and they'd spend days looking for their babies. Uh, and for in their case part- somebody doesn't know, I'm just going to interrupt you. What yeah. does happen to those baby cows? Yeah, like, sure. We know the answer, but I think it's important that everybody else does. That's too. a really good question. So, you know, the, one of the the problems is that these babies don't have any economic value to the industry. They're not being born to be new dairy cows. The male cows. Even the female cows. Okay. A very small minority of female cows will be raised as new dairy cows, but most of the females and all of the males, they just get dragged to this uninsulated tin shed. This is way in way upstate New York in the middle of winter, so it's below freezing, and they just get left there. And some of them would freeze to death. The rest that didn't would get sold for slaughter when their days are weeks old and go and be turned into like really cheap hamburger meat. So they're basically mm-hmm. a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And that was the first thing I really realized was like, whoa, it's not just you know meat. Like you know, uh, I heard someone say the other day, uh, you know, dairy is liquid meat. And when you think about it, it really is in terms of all these animals are headed to slaughter, including mm-hmm. tons and tons of these babies. That's a good way to put it, because I think a lot of people have a disconnect, and that's why we have a lot of vegetarians, mm-hmm. um, because they feel like, okay, we're not eating the meat, so we're doing something good. And they are, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but if you put it that way, liquid meat, it really makes that connection. Right, so like that. right. So, you know, I'm not going to bum out all your listeners with a, a laundry list of every bad thing I saw, but it, it was a really uh, eye-opening experience, and I think... After that, I kind of got out of there and I was like, okay, I did my part. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go back to my cushy corporate job in Manhattan and mm-hmm. leave this behind. I know the truth now. And how long were you there for? I was there for about five weeks. Yeah, and, and what happened in the aftermath of that investigation was just incredible. MFA took my case. They brought it to the media. So we got a, an exclusive with Nightline with Brian Ross and a bunch of other media coverage. So millions of people became educated about the truth behind dairy. Can I back up really Please. quick? Did you um, film all of this? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. So you so had every, hidden cameras. Yeah, so the way it works is we go and get a job just like any other worker. We do our job as good as we can. You know, we keep our head down. Uh, but the whole time we're wearing a pinhole camera, concealed somewhere on our person, um, and we're recording everything we see. So, yeah, we, we were able to take that footage. We took it to the media. We educated people. We took it to law enforcement along with a criminal complaint that we uh, prepared. Mm-hmm. And that led to uh, my supervisor being convicted of animal cruelty for beating the animals. We were able to work with local lawmakers in New York to introduce legislation that would uh, have banned some of the practices that I documented. Uh, the distributor for the farm canceled their contract. They were supplying to Domino's, Pizza Hut, Papa John's. Oh my God. So it was a big economic blow. Uh, and even the farm itself changed some of its policies. So it started using anesthesia when it chopped off the cow's tails, which it wasn't doing before. I'm sorry, it stopped chopping off the cow's tails and it started using anesthesia for this practice called disbudding, which is when you keep these animals super confined, obviously cows have horns, but there's not room for horns mm. in the factory farm model. So they would take a hot iron and basically just scoop it out of their head. And man, watching these cows just thrash and they'd vomit in their mouths, which were muzzled and tied to a post, and they'd collapse. Um, so they finally agreed to start using anesthesia, which was a really big step. And just seeing all the aftermath, all this positive fallout, I kind of got hooked. Uh, it was like almost like... You I, made such a huge difference I, in those five weeks. 
And to go from being like, hey, I want to help animals and I have no idea how to all of a sudden, hey, I'm on the front lines, you know, trying to change things. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, a little bit addictive. Um, and so against my better judgment, I stuck it out. Uh, <laughs> I ended up working undercover for about two years doing uh, some more cases in different industries. And um, eventually I just hit my wall and, and wasn't able to really do that anymore. But I knew I wanted to stay involved with everything MFA was doing. So I went to law school and now I've been able to come back and, and work as one of their attorneys. So. So did you go to law school with this purpose? Yes, absolutely. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. What were you? What was your cushy corporate job before? <laughs> uh, like I said, I was working for a, a business intelligence firm. So we were basically just digging up dirt on corporate CEOs or vetting CEOs and things like that. Uh, we did a lot of crazy stuff. But yeah, it was basically a PI for big business. And did you go to law school for animal law? Yeah, so I, I just seen... a couple universities that are now doing that, right? So animal law is the fastest growing field of law right now. So oh, these animal law programs <laughs> so are opening up at law schools like every week. There's new ones being uh, introduced. It's really incredible. Only a few years ago when I went to law school, there weren't very many of these. Yeah. Um, but I think there's been sort of a, a, a zeitgeist of people getting interested in this right now. Um, so there's a whole new generation of animal attorneys coming out there. It's pretty cool to see. I had just seen what we were doing at MFA and what other groups like the Humane Society of the United States were doing with yeah. their lawyers. And I just thought it was incredible. You know, I think I came to this, that job thinking, well, like, everybody's got to go vegan. It's so easy. I did it. It's still, you know, it's not that hard. And I still obviously believe that. Um, but also just seeing what these animals go through, you know, when you see a battery cage egg farm where there's 300,000 birds per barn and dozens of barns on the property. Wow. So millions of animals in these tiny little cages where they can never move. And, you know, I realize you can't wait for everyone to go vegan. We need to do everything on the table to try to improve their lives. And so that got me really interested in legislation and policy because I saw that, you know what, as long as these animals are going to be on the farm, we need to get them out of these cages. We need to get them anesthesia. You know, we got to do everything to make people aware and to reduce their suffering while we're also calling for a plant-based diet. And what about people that may say, well, I only eat grass-fed and the cows are in the grass and the meadow and they're playing and all of that stuff. Is that a myth? Does that exist? Did you ever see anything like that? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure, you know, some of those places are still out there, but they're, you know, less than the 1%. Mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of these animals are raised on these horrible factory farms. Um, and even the ones that do come from these small, you know, old McDonald's-style farms, you know, it's not perfect for them. They have They go through a lot. They're still getting castrated and tail docked without anesthesia they're still obviously being killed for their food and that's not a pleasant thing to go through so just because they're not a factory farmed animal they're still essentially being tortured i mean in fact some of the worst abuses that we've documented in our undercover investigations are from these smaller farms uh people you know when you just see these uh hired hands who just like my supervisor just take out their rage on them uh we've just uh, seen the worst forms of abuse on big farms and small farms uh alike yeah so so what happens to your supervisor or when someone gets caught mm -hmm. abusing animals? What does their sentence look like? Sure, sure. Uh, well, typically, um, depending on the severity of the abuse, some of them have gone to jail for a few months. Um, my supervisor didn't. He was assessed, uh, uh, I think, a $500 fine. But oh, my God. Are you kidding me? But he was also, for what it's worth, um, you know, ordered not to have contact with animals for two years. So obviously separated him from the cows. He lost his job. And uh, I think it's important not to underestimate just creating that, that precedent under the law that, hey, these animals matter. Uh, they count and you can't just beat them willy nilly, you know. Um, so we've been building out that case law so that now, you know, it used to be much, much harder to get these convictions. And now we're getting them pretty regularly on undercover investigations because law enforcement knows how to handle this. We know how to bring it to them. 
And now we're getting convictions for chickens and turkeys and animals that until very recently had no rights under the law. So uh, I think finding that the the workers that are in the slaughterhouses are now having a higher rate of violence outside the workplace. You know, I, I can only speak to what I saw personally, but yes, uh, there was a real seemed to be a real ratio, a real correlation between that. So like I. At every place I worked at, you know, most of the workers were, I think, at heart, good people who wanted to do the right thing. And they're just economically vulnerable. A lot of them Mm -hmm. were undocumented or they came from, you know, these super rural parts of the United States where there just aren't a lot of jobs around. So they might have a job application at the auto plant down the street. But right now they're paying rent working this factory farm. And they would tell me, you know, that's horrible. I I lost sleep and lost weight and had nightmares Mm -hmm. when I first started working here. But, like, don't worry, you'll get used to it. Um, and so, that's another part of the tragedy, too, yeah. is that we are exposing humans to this ultimate cruelty like it's the norm and right. it's their only option. It's Yeah, it literally soul crushing, you know, like it's not the way that any of us are supposed to interact with animals. But there was always at every farm I worked at, there was at least one person who really took a lot of sadistic glee out of hurting the animals. Mm. And that person was always tolerated by the other people, like I said, who would just sort of laugh at it. And on a couple instances, I noticed that those were the same people who would also joke or brag about spousal and child abuse. And oh, uh, one of them would like to you know, say like, oh, I was able to run over a, a chipmunk on the drive to work today. Ha, oh, I got him good, you know? So these were just people who just lived oh, to her things. Oh, this makes me so sick. I mean, it's like I know and it exists, but like just to hear you say it, it's like I, I can't believe that this is still happening. Sure, yeah. And I know that there's a lot of movements. There's a lot of policy change that's happening, and we're going to get into all that. Do you think, and there's clean meat initiatives, do you think that we're going to see the end of factory farming in our lifetime? Absolutely. I'm very confident. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to go somewhere positive first. <laughs> I thought you did too. I thought you did too. Yep. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm really happy to hear that. We can go back to the conversation. But I was like, I just want to tell Food Heals Nation that there will be a happy ending. So for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us a little bit about the ag gag laws? Sure. So what happened is after we began to get more and more success doing these undercover investigations, really drawing attention to... Uh, the truth about what happens in these factory farms and slaughterhouses. You know, you might think that the industry would go, hey, we have a real PR problem here. We need to start addressing some of these issues. Um, but they took the exact opposite approach. Um, you know, this is an industry that's been hostile to any sort of reform, even the most modest animal welfare measures they're against. And in fact, they've managed to amend through their lobbying more than half of the state animal cruelty laws to exempt common practices, like some of the things I saw, extreme confinement, chopping off body parts without anesthesia. They don't believe there should be any laws protecting animals. And so mm. their tactic to sort of fight this now because they see the power of these undercover exposés and, and what showing the truth to people can do. And they've realized they need to stop it. And so beginning around 2010, they started lobbying for these things called ag-gag laws. And they take different forms, but basically the idea behind these laws, they're state-level laws that would make it a crime to conduct these kind of investigations. So instead of trying to penalize the workers and the supervisors and managers who are torturing these animals and you know making people sick through food safety problems and stuff, they've gone after us, the whistleblowers. The original ag-gag laws were passed in uh, Iowa, Utah, and Idaho. Mm-hmm. And they, in different ways, some of them made it illegal to take pictures of factory farms without the owner's permission. Mm-hmm. Some of them would make it uh, made it a crime to make a false statement on a job application. So I had applied to farms where on the job application it says, are you a member of an uh, animal rights organization right. or a right. union? And, you know, obviously I wrote, no, I'm not, because I know why you're asking me that. 
uh, that was at a factory farm in Iowa. The next year after my expose came out, they passed this law making it a crime to lie in a job application and they cited me and they actually, the farm brought out my job application, showed a picture of this form I signed and said, look, we need to be able to throw this guy in jail. Oh my God, you're shaking it up over there. Yeah, right? So so they passed that you're law. never yeah. allowed in Iowa ever. <laughs> can't even cross the state line. I'll be fine. Um, so no, no, full love to Iowa. Actually, I enjoy living there other, other than that experience, obviously. Sure, um, sure. But um, yeah, so you know, these met immediate blowback. People do not want to be told what they can and can't see. And certainly the media doesn't like being told what they can and can't report on. And these laws would have actually do currently make it a crime in some cases for the media to share our footage. Um, and so, so wrong. Yeah, so wrong, but they made, you know, the ag industry made the wrong enemies with these laws. So the medias are taking our investigations really seriously. They used to not want to show it because they were like, this is too graphic. We're going to lose viewers. And now they're like, oh, you're coming after us and the public's right to know. Like, we really need to show this. And so we started getting coverage on USA Today and Rolling Stone and New York Times. And, uh, you know, a real, you know, Streisand effect, they call, you know, and you're told not to think about something, then you want to know about it. So it really blew up in their faces in a major way. And their approach was to then try to tweak it in little ways. So they're like, okay, now we're going to make it like a mandatory reporting bill. If you see animal cruelty, you got to report it within 24 hours. Well, that sounds nice, right? Uh-huh. But it's actually these bills, you know, you look at what the lawmakers were saying. It was all about getting us to blow our cover and, you know, go to law enforcement be- before we could oh. actually build a case and show that these factory farmers are responsible for it. You know, mm-hmm. we can go after, you know, the Jose, the low-level worker who's just following orders, but they don't want us embarrassing the management, you know? And so they would try that. And thankfully, you know, two of these laws have already, well, they, they pushed these laws, they pushed 40 of these bills over the last seven years. Mm-hmm. Only six ended up passing. Two have already been overturned as unconstitutional restrictions on free speech. So there's only four of these laws left right now. Um, we're continuing to fight them. Four of the 24-hour laws. No, of these okay. ag-gag laws in general. Four of the ag-gag laws, okay. Right. So they only exist. They've gone after, they tried to pass 40, they okay. passed six, and now only two, four remain in, fa- in effect after two have been overturned by federal courts who said, this is unconstitutional. You cannot do this. People have a right to free speech. These people are journalists, just like Upton Sinclair, who went undercover at a slaughterhouse back in 1906 mm-hmm. and exposed cruelty in the slaughterhouse industry there. Upton Sinclair and his book, The Jungle, ended up leading to the creation of the first federal agency regulating the meat industry. And these people are part of that tradition. They need a right. The public needs to know they have a right to speak out about it. So these federal courts overturned those laws. And now the industry is continuing to push all sorts of other crazy measures. We can go on for hours about. I mean, that's what I do now is fighting these laws. And they've backed off largely on ag-gag laws. They did pass one in Arkansas last year. That's what I was just going to say. Which four states are the ones with ag-gag laws? Sure. So right now it's Arkansas, North Carolina, Iowa, and, oh, I hate myself. I can't remember the fourth one right now. Well, if you're a resident of one of those three states, what can you do if you want to see something like that overturn? What's an action that people, that listeners can do? Yeah, you know, the best thing you could probably do is contact your your lawmakers, your representatives uh, in your state Senate and, and House of Representatives. Contact your governor and encourage them to speak out about this. I'm going to, I mean, I already did it. I'm going to look it up right now. I did it for North Carolina because that's where I um, am from. And it made me so disappointed to hear um, North Carolina in the news for this. And I was like, no, come on. Mm. But they're like, you know, they have all the hog farms yeah. and it's a huge animal agriculture state. Yeah. I never saw it growing up. I didn't even know it existed, but it's, it's in all of these small towns yeah. across the state. 
and it breaks my heart that we are that we're one of the town one of the places that passes agag well other than the smell you never know i mean i remember you know growing up driving around upstate new york and you'd see um these enormous white barns you know mm-hmm. and there's just these huge fans and i was just like oh those are greenhouses they're probably growing vegetables in there right and it wasn't until i actually went inside one of them and i'm like oh my god those were factory farms the whole time yeah no and you do smell it when you drive in these certain areas but oh, yeah, anyone see... driven down the five in, a, in oh, yeah. California, <laughs> in LA, yeah. yeah, or California, and but you don't see it. They're good. At, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, the five, you see it too. What do you see? Oh, the Have huge feedlot. Yeah, it's a huge feedlot on your way up to. But you don't see any type of abuse or anything going on. And you just smell it. Yeah, you smell it for sure. It smells like poo and death. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have a question. How did you emotionally handle what you saw? Because I can't imagine having a straight face while all this is going on and not internalizing it. And like, I mean, you obviously have used this passion for good, but I don't know how I wouldn't like get so depressed. I wanted to, you know, do something drastic. Yeah. Like, how do you deal with this emotionally when you know, you're in there? It's kind of impossible not to internalize it a little bit. That's the nature of being undercover is holding that in. I mean, look, these jobs are incredibly physically exhausting on the best day. You know, you're getting there at 5 a.m. You're doing heavy physical labor. You're getting filthy. On top of that, you're dealing with the emotional turmoil of just constantly witnessing the most barbaric animal abuse. And on top of that, you're dealing with the stress and the uncertainty of living undercover. You're paranoid. You're constantly worried about being found out and what might happen. Um, yeah, so that's it's, stressful too. It's this perfect I'd be like, storm. they're all going to know. Right? And then, and then even on your free time, you go home to some crappy little motel in the middle of nowhere. You got no one to talk to. None of my friends knew what I was doing because I couldn't risk it getting out there. Wow, that's um, a good point. You can't tell anyone. Yeah, and you're certainly not making friends with people in town because you're living, you know, you don't want to be like, hey, you know, my name's so-and-so, right. you know, the farmhand, like, yeah. who, who am I going to hang out with, you know? <laughs> uh, so, you know, my real, my confidant was Nathan Runkle, the executive director of, of Mercy for Animals. This yeah. was, you know, almost 10 years ago and it was, mm-hmm. we were a much smaller organization then. So I'd get out of work and on the drive home, I'd call up Nathan and, ostensibly I was calling him to report back and tell him about my findings, but really it was just to vent and cry and and have someone to talk to. So he was my lifeline right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now that we've grown as an organization, we have a fully fleshed out investigations department they have access to therapists they have you know all sorts of professionals who I mean our director of investigations, the former investigator herself, Lindsay Wolf, we really know how to take care of our, our investigators in a really uh, robust way. But at the time, we were just sort of winging it and figuring it out. I definitely uh, still carry a lot of that with me. But at the time, I think all you can do is just think, look, this is the greater good. I um, say, it's all worth it in the yeah, end, right? You know, there were times when I wanted to just grab, you know, I'd see these baby calves freezing to death in this tin shed. And I just I remember this one, I would spend all my free time just petting her because I saw her day after day, watching the life drain out of her eyes. And I'd sit with her and pet her and then I'd get up and be like, I got to get back to work. And she'd start bellowing after me. And so I'd go sit down with her for another five minutes. Oh and then my God. This I knew, is yeah. And I, I, you know, this one time I'm like, you're going to be gone the next time I come back. And sure enough, there you she know. was. And, you know, I just, I wanted to grab her so badly. I was right near Cornell where they have a great veterinary hospital. I'm like, I can save this cow. <sighs> this would be yeah. a great use of this month of my life. I can save a, save a life. But I knew that, you know, this, this stuff had to get out there. And if I did that or if I they punched, would find out. punched Phil, my supervisor, or all the different things I wanted to do, you know, it would, it would not be in the animal's best interest in the long run, that I, you really need to stay there. So, you know, you live with it um, and you just have to... I sort of rationalize in your head that this is what needs to happen. Oh my God. Well, thank you. Like, 
I can't even imagine. It's like so I, I don't know how I wouldn't save that cow because I would I would be the one that broke all the rules and like got mm-hmm. in trouble and like went to jail uh-huh. and then they, they would have no footage because I've ruined it. <laughs> We're not sending you out there. No, you're yeah. not. You're not. I wouldn't survive. Um, so what can people do today to get involved in helping farm animals, whether, you know, from from the point of I'm ready to go undercover and from the point mm-hmm. of like, hey, I have a full time job and I just want to help out on the weekends or whenever I can or totally. donate my money or donate my time. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bunch of great groups out there. I'm so proud to be part of Mercy for Animals. I think we're I mean, we are uh, the leading, you know, farmed animal protection organization. We're international now. We're doing incredible things that's all driven by our grassroots, yeah. right? So we have, I mean, if people go to our website, mercyforanimals.org, you can sign up right there. Uh, you'll get action alerts with things you can do, whether it's sending a tweet or writing a letter to your lawmaker, or you know, we do leafleting and all sorts of educational events. We do this thing called paid per view, where we'll go to like busy places or college campuses uh, or events and give people a dollar to watch factory farm footage and people almost never take the dollar after they take it, but it's a really good way to get people to go, okay, I'll, I'll sit and watch this Wait, stuff. Wait, this is fascinating. Tell me more about that. It's, yeah, a, cool, it's a cool program. It's great. Okay, so, okay, yeah, tell me about it. So you're offering someone a dollar. So imagine you're a college kid walking through your commons yeah. and someone says to you, hey, you have, uh, you want to make a dollar in four minutes to watch this video? And we'll go, okay, sure, I'll check it out. Okay. And then you watch and it's actually a video out. Uh, it's narrated by me and and um, with my kid and our family. It's called What Cody Saw. You can watch it at whatcodysaw.com. Yes, I've watched. Um, and yeah, so you watch this, and it's sort of a tour of of how food is produced, how animal products are produced today, and it shows you know how fish is made and chicken and eggs and dairy and all these different things. And then after the four minute video, you get a dollar to watch it. And like I said, you know, most of the time people are going, no, you know, I'm not going to take that dollar or save it for the next person. But it's a great way to have volunteers come out and help out and staff these tables. So we're doing things all the time that people can get involved with. So certainly just the website's a great way to join in. We have a group called Hen Heroes, uh, which people can Google, Mercy for Animals, Hen Heroes. That's a group of more dedicated activists who also can do just maybe 10 or 15 minute actions here and there. And we let you know about that. That's a way to really step up your activism. We have a writer's group called Oink, O-I-N-K. It's kind of a pun because ink. Um, mm-hmm. So those are people who really have a, a way with words and they can help us write letters to the editor or things like that to help uh, raise awareness about things. Right now we have a huge ballot initiative to change California's law right now. So we're recruiting an army of literally over a thousand volunteers around the state to go out and collect signatures, which are going to help us get a law for a vote next year that would ban a lot of these practices like battery cages for where they can find uh, egg-laying hens and gestation crates that keep mother pigs and veal crates, which keep baby calves in these tiny cages where they can never move. So there's all sorts of grassroots opportunities and ways to get involved. And then, of course, you know, supporting uh, organizations financially. Uh, you know, everyone's got a role to play. And certainly people with special skills should always get in touch with us because we can always use people helping out, doing whatever they can. All right, if you want to hear the full interview with Cody, go back to episode 184 of Food Heals. Food Heals Nation, are you tired of relying on caffeine to get you through your day? Or maybe you find yourself struggling to stay focused and productive? Well, I have a solution for you. It's called Rise, and it's by our friends at Cured Nutrition. So what is Rise? Rise is a nootropic blend of functional mushrooms, adaptogens, and broad-spectrum CBD that was actually custom-formulated by Cured's in-house clinical herbalist, 
Over the course of a year, this powerful blend contains these crazy, amazing, effective ingredients like lion's mane, cordyceps, mushrooms, rhodiola, and ginseng. And all of these work synergistically together to give you that mental clarity, that mental performance without jitters, without the crash that you sometimes get with caffeine or your, you know, your daily latte. So if you're like me, you like to be laser focused on your goals, but there's all these things that can take us out, phone notifications, right? People needing your attention. And so when I want that laser focus, I absolutely turn to rise because I have goals that I'm going to accomplish this year. And I know you do too. So if you're ready to say goodbye to caffeine or just replace one of your lattes throughout the day and say hello to extended mental clarity and mental performance and laser focus, head on over to curednutrition.com. Use the coupon code foodheals at checkout and you'll get 20% off your order. Again, it's curednutrition.com and coupon code foodheals. And not only that, but you can even save an additional 10% with the Daily Dose Bundle. That is the Cured Nutrition's bundle of Rise, Aura, and Zen. I just told you about the Rise, and then of course the Aura is for your gut health, which we talk about that all the time on Food Heals. We need to always be improving our gut health. And then of course, I think you've heard me talk about Zen as well and that is for a good night's sleep. So you can save your 20%, and if you want to save an additional 10 and get some extra products, you can get the Daily Dose Bundle, the Rise, Aura, and the Zen. Again, it's all over at curednutrition.com. Use the coupon code FOODHEALS. Food Heals Nation, as we age, we start to notice things about maybe our face that we don't love, and that's been the case for me lately. As much as I do to anti-age myself and to keep myself healthy, I was noticing that my eyes were looking tired, and maybe because I'm overdoing it sometimes, but that's why I love this product. It is the Brilliant Eye Brightener by our friends at Thrive Cosmetics. So the Brilliant Eye Brightener is this beautiful highlighting stick, and what it does is it brightens and opens up my eyes. It's like an instant eye lift, but you know, I'm not going to the med spa to do that, so I need the makeup. And what you do is you just kind of apply it to the inner corner of your eyes. It's just very subtle, and it kind of helps, like if I haven't had enough sleep, it looks like I have. I look a little bit fresher, right? You can also use it as an eyeshadow. So I've used it as an eyeshadow when I'm going out at night night. It's really pretty. So I like that I can have one product that works for daytime and works for evening time. And of course, you know, because I've talked about Thrive Cosmetics so much, but just to remind you, everything at Thrive Cosmetics is certified 100% vegan, absolutely cruelty-free, and the products are clean. There are no parabens, no sulfates, no phthalates, and it's a brand that Food Heals can get behind because they have their bigger than beauty promise, which means they're giving back. Every time we make a purchase, they give a portion of that to support organizations that help communities thrive, like people that need help with battling domestic violence, homelessness, cancer, and so much more. So that's why it's called Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, because they have a cause that matters. So you've got to try Thrive Cosmetics for yourself. You've heard me talk about their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara that makes me look like I'm wearing those false extensions when I'm not. And now I am really, really into the Brilliant Eye Brightening Highlighter Stick. 
So check it all out. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash foodheals. Again, that's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S.com slash foodheals. You'll save 20% off your first order. In this clip, you're going to hear from Milo Runkle. At the time of the recording, he went by Nathan Runkle, and today he is Milo. So Milo grew up on a farm in a small town, and at just 15 years old, after witnessing the brutal murder of a piglet, he founded the organization Mercy for Animals. He started out carrying out open rescues, going to farms undercover, rescuing injured animals, trawling through manure pits, and witnessing firsthand the cruel conditions. And he went on to investigate the horror of slaughterhouses, and that made him even more determined to give animals a voice and drive a positive change into this world. Roll it, Roxy. When I was a teenager, I was a wall breaker. I was sneaking onto factory farms at night using the cover of darkness, me and a small team of other Mercy for Animals volunteers went into many of the largest egg factory farms in Ohio. Friendship 15 at Buckeye Egg, LaRue, Ohio. We discovered a hen whose wing is clearly stuck between the bars of the two cages, which has left her immobilized with no access to food or water. I risked arrest many times to document what was happening to animals and to get animals who were suffering out of harm's way. I saw with my very own eyes the nightmare that is the reality for birds used in the egg industry. So this is Hope. This is a hen that we rescued from the trash can. She's now in the sanctuary where she gets to run around all day and dust bathe and perch and roost and play with her friends. So it's good to see her and see how well she's doing. And this tactic is something known as open rescues. It's a tactic that started in Australia about 30 years ago. And it is based on nonviolent direct action, providing aid to animals in distress and documenting the conditions that lay before us. If we saw animals who were in dire need of care, we would get them out of these farms and we would take them to veterinarians to be treated and then we would move them onto animal sanctuaries. I knew what I was doing was illegal and I knew that I could be sent to prison for many years. The risk was worth the reward. I knew that these animals were suffering out of sight and out of mind and they really had no one that was advocating for them or working to protect them. So I needed to do that. This is just one of the stories that you can find in my upcoming book, Mercy for Animals. It's coming out September 12th. So how did you get started? Tell us about Mercy for Animals and where did your passion for animal activism really begin? Yeah, I was born on a small crop farm in a village of less than 2,000 people in rural Ohio. I was slated to be a fifth generation farmer. Um, and my empathy and connection and respect for animals ultimately led me down a path that would ultimately culminate in me founding Mercy for Animals 18 years ago. I, I guess you could say I always had a natural affinity for animals. It was our uh, dogs and cats who first um, 
really taught me that when it comes to a spark for life and having personalities and minds and interests and needs, but also the ability to love and feel sadness and sorrow and pain and joy, all animals are equal and connected. When I was six years old, uh, it was a little rat named Caesar that I uh, rescued from a breeder who are our neighbors. Um, He's slated to be uh, used in laboratory experiments. And Caesar became sort of my best friend. And he taught me that there really is no difference between companion animals like dogs and cats and animals that we uh, as a society oftentimes label as not being worthy of of, uh, consideration. So Caesar taught me that the only difference between pets and pests or animals that we consider friends or food are our perception of them. So when I was 15, there was an animal abuse case at my local high school that ultimately led me to found uh, the organization Mercy for Animals. One afternoon at our high school, the teacher of an agriculture class, um, whose name was Steve Jenkins, decided that he was going to kill some um, baby piglets on his farm. He had a large large pig operation with about 10,000 pigs. And um, he arrived to the school with this bucket of piglets that he had tried to kill. And one of the piglets was still alive. She was standing on top of all the other piglets. Um, A student in the classroom who did part-time work on Mr. Jenkins' pig farm walked over grabbed the piglet by her hind legs and slammed her head first into the ground in an attempt to, to kill this piglet. She was still alive. Wow. She was in horrible distress. Her skull was fractured. She was bleeding out of her mouth. A few other students in the class who witnessed this were just outraged, grabbed this dying piglet, left the classroom, ran down the hallway to the classroom of a teacher uh, named Molly Fearing, who was known as being a vegetarian who cared about animals. Mm. Molly left the school with this piglet cradled in her arms, went to a veterinarian and had this piglet euthanized. There was nothing that could be done to to save this piglet. Molly's next stop was the sheriff's department where she filed an animal cruelty complaint and those charges uh, were filed and it became a big deal in this local farming community. It was in all the, the, the local papers. And the first day that I went to trial, all the local pig farmers rallied behind Mr. Jenkins. They didn't want animal advocates telling them what to do, essentially, in their words. Right. Um, oh, my God. This is heart-wrenching. It, it really is. And the first day of that trial, the animal cruelty charges were dismissed because slamming baby piglets head first into the ground, a practice known as thumping, is considered standard agricultural practice. It takes place on pig farms all over the United States and the world um, on on a daily basis. Disgusting. God. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. And if something is considered standard agricultural practice, it is exempt from cruelty prosecution. So this case illustrated to me that we needed an organization that would advocate on behalf of of these animals, on, on animals used in the food industry, it was clear to me that if this was a puppy or if this was a kitten who had been slammed headfirst into the ground um, at a school, cruelty charges would have stuck. Uh, the perpetrators would have likely been given jail time, would have been leveled with heavy fines, would have been referred for psychiatric evaluation or even prohibited from ever having animals again. But because it was a, a quote-unquote food animal or a farmed animal, 
the law didn't provide such um, protection. You guys, you know what it reminds me of? This has bothered me for a long time, and I'm totally going off topic, but did you guys see Making of a Murderer, the documentary? Mm, Yeah, yeah. So everyone is like, oh, Stephen Avery was so evil because he killed the cat. Does anyone, you guys remember that? Right. Okay. Yes, I absolutely agree. But why is he then considered a person that's probably going to murder a human being because he killed the cat when people across the U.S. at all time, I mean, across the world, are murdering these innocent animals at all time and they're not considered that they could just go murder a human being? How is it different? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, this is one of the problems with factory farms and slaughterhouses is you know, the, the FBI uses cruelty to animals as one of the top three indicators on if someone is going to become a serial killer or mm-hmm. engage in acts of violence against against people. So it, it can be, you know, a sign of these sort of antisocial violent behaviors. With factory farming and with slaughterhouses, we are essentially creating environments where Otherwise, good, decent people who take these jobs oftentimes out of desperation. Many of the workers in slaughterhouses are undocumented immigrants. They're doing Mm -hmm. society's dirty work, the dehumanizing, dangerous work that nobody wants. But in the process of doing that, they're losing a part of their humanity and their soul and their spirit. I mean, you can imagine if your job was to slit the throat of animals for eight hours a day. What that would do to your psyche. And I talk in the book about the Sinclair effect, which is this um, notion that was put forward by Upton Sinclair, the author of The Jungle, over 100 years ago, that predicted that in communities where slaughterhouses are based, there would be higher rates of violent crime. And in fact, the data supports this. And a group of psychologists took a, a deeper look and found that around the U.S., in communities where large portions of the population are employed by slaughterhouses, that rates of domestic violence are higher, rates of homicides are higher, and other violent crimes, and many of these homicides being carried out in the same way in which animals are slaughtered in slaughterhouses. So, you know, these are symptoms of people suffering from PTSD, or more specifically, perpetration-induced traumatic stress Um, so, you know, to me, the question is, do slaughterhouses have a place in a civilized and ethical and moral and kind and peaceful society? To me, the the answer is pretty, pretty clear. Yeah, me too. I agree with you 100%. So I totally sidetracked from your story. (laughs) So go back to um, telling us about like how, how you formed these opinions and what happened. Yeah. So, I mean, that the animal abuse case at the at my local high school was the watershed moment that led me to, to start the organization. And, you know, this was 18 years ago. I had no money, no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> I was in a village of, like I said, 2000 people, wasn't even old enough to drive. So it was really started with just a burning desire to right a wrong and give a voice to animals. And, you know, over the years, the organization progressed and started doing investigative work um, at factory farms in Ohio, um, first using a tactic known as open rescues, which is really a combination of civil disobedience, animal rescue, and investigative work all wrapped up into one, consists of going into factory farms at night, not damaging any property, but rescuing animals who may be 
thrown away in trash cans while they're still alive or mangled in cage wire or suffering from broken bones. And of course, these animals are just viewed as disposable commodities um, on these on these huge factory farms. There's no individual veterinary care that's provided to birds, um, for example, used for egg production. So we would go in, document the, the horrible conditions, directly rescue birds that we found, and then we would go to the, the media and we would get this information out to the public. We would ask for animal cruelty charges to be filed, though no action was ever taken. So this was sort of the, the early days of the organization. And then around 2007, we started doing employment-based investigations, sending people into factory farms, getting hired, wired with pinhole-sized hidden cameras, and working sometimes for months on end to document what happens to these animals and use that evidence to push for legal and, and corporate policy change. I mean, this is incredible that you started this organization with nothing and you have built this huge movement. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, look, I, I am one person in the organization. I've definitely been with the organization since day one. But the story of Mercy for Animals, the organization, is, is one that is paved by thousands of people, people who volunteer their time, whether it's showing up at a protest or a march or passing out information people who share information from the organization on social media and people who make donations big and small to fund these investigations and mm-hmm. fund this grassroots work. I am just so grateful to be able to do work that I'm so passionate about, but also to work with a community of such generous and selfless people on a daily basis. Nathan, with these uh, first activism kind of things, you said you were going in and and documenting and kind of rescuing these animals out of these situations. Were you one one of the people that's going in there physically and doing that? That's right. Yeah, I started doing these investigations when I was 17. So over the course of time now, I've been to dozens of factory farms, not only in the United States, but around the world. Um, So yeah, I was crawling through manure pits and um, you know, broken cage wire and documenting all of this on my own and, and, and all of this firsthand, which really instilled in me the a real sense of urgency and how urgent this situation is, how massive it is, how serious it is, and how very real it is. You know, it can be easy to read about these things or see videos of them and be appalled, but it's another thing to really stand there and smell the waste of millions of animals um, in, in the dust and the dander and hear the cries of, of animals in, in these these places. It's something that really haunts you and sticks yeah. with you forever. I mean, that was my question. I was like, how do you cope with that emotionally and kind of detox that pain when you're done? It's it's amazing that you're strong enough to do it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think it's one that goes even beyond just what investigators themselves face. And, and Investigators, myself included over the years, certainly face emotional trauma from the work that they do. But there's also secondary trauma for people that that watch the videos. And I I think a lot of animal advocates do suffer from secondary trauma when you're constantly advocating on behalf of these animals and and showing people the, the images. And I think it's important as a movement that we recognize that this is real and that self-care is really vital. Um, We have such a high burnout rate with animal advocates. And I think it's because 
if you're if you don't take care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, um, it's easy to to get sad and depressed and angry and frustrated and sort of lose hope in humanity. And I think we have to really make a conscious effort of remembering that we're doing this work out of love. It's out of compassion. And while we are against cruelty to animals, we are for kindness. And that's really at the root of what we do and why we do it. So for me, self-care means everything from having a therapist um, to talk about what's going on to exercising, doing yoga, meditation, um, cycling, spending time in nature, traveling, spending time with friends and family. You know, there while there is a lot of darkness in the world and a lot of suffering and cruelty, there's also a lot of light and hope and joy and love and beauty. Um, and so I think it's really important to celebrate that um, and, and just live from a place of, of gratitude. I could not agree more. Yes, have an attitude of gratitude. That's the only way we can get through these lives when we're facing so much oppression and adversity and all of these things. And I, um, I read aloud the prologue to your book to a friend, and I couldn't get through it. I started crying. It's so powerful, and I haven't been where you've been, but I felt like I was there. You talk about the smells when you open the doors, and you talk about the animals who are mangled in their cages and, and helping them just to get up so that they could not be stuck. And it's heartbreaking. And I'm already vegan, but if I had read that, you know, if someone reads that right now and they're not, I don't think I would ever eat eggs again. It really was that that powerful. And it was just a few pages. <laughs> the prologue is not even a full chapter. And it had me. Like I was I was riveted and 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 disgusted and and sad and and I felt empowered to do something. So I feel like your book is going to be very very powerful. So you're on your book tour. Um tell us what really inspired you to write the book and tell us what's in the book that really stands out to you. Yeah, well well thank you for that. You know, I I wrote the book because I want to inspire people to take action on behalf of animals. And if that action at the starting point is to just simply change your own lifestyle and move towards compassionate food choices, towards a vegan diet, that is a huge win for animals and something that I really celebrate and that that is helping make the world a better place. And I hope for people that maybe are already making humane food choices that the book inspires them to do more and to find their unique, authentic voice of how to advocate on behalf of animals. You know, I'm excited to share my story with the world, but I'm even more excited in the book to share the story of our undercover investigators, people like Pete and Liz and Cody. These are really the unsung heroes of the animal protection movement. These are people who operate in the shadows, who do this work, not for fame or glory or recognition, but they do it to help animals and they risk their, their lives in certain situations. They risk their physical safety. They risk their emotional well-being so that they can shine a light into some of the darkest places in our society, inside of factory farms, inside of slaughterhouses. So I think this book is really the first one ever written that gives such a detailed, personal look at what life is like for an undercover investigator. 
some of the trials and tribulations that they they face, but also the hardships of having to leave animals behind that are suffering and know that they can affect larger change, societal change, policy change by documenting what's happening now to push for changes later. And I tell a number of stories in the book about really world-changing successes that have been driven by the work of these brave undercover investigators. I also tell the story of individual animals, some of whom I have rescued uh, at Egg Farm to tell the story of Hope, a hen that I pulled out of a trash can at an egg farm in Ohio. But there are also stories of animals who are never given names, who are only given ear tag numbers. You know, while we weren't able to get them out of these horrible factory farms, my hope is that their stories reaching a large audience can can help continue to drive change. Um, I'm also really excited to tell the stories of people in the innovation space. You know, at the end of the day, I have a lot of optimism and hope and excitement about the future. And part of that is because of what's happening in cellular agriculture, growing meat outside of animals. Uh, it's meat without the murder. I'm taking single cells from animals that are self-replicating and uh, giving them oxygen and sugar and a growth medium and putting them in bioreactors and literally culturing meat. The work that's being done in this space by people like Uma Valetti, who was a cardiologist who saw this um, technology being used in the medical profession, decided to leave his lucrative career to start a company called Memphis Meats, which is one of the premier clean meat companies. These are people that give me a lot of hope for the future. And, you know, if you look at, for example, what got overworked, exhausted horses off of the bustling streets, it wasn't just campaigns by animal welfare activists, it was innovation. It was the invention of the Model T, you know, nearly a hundred years ago. So I, I think that cellular agriculture, for example, will be the same thing for food as the Model T was for transportation in the sense that when we have alternatives that are better, cheaper, faster, more efficient, the outdated options become literally that, the outdated options. So I, I think that what's happening with clean meat, but also with plant-based meats, uh, you know, if you look at Beyond Meat and the- Love Beyond Meat. So amazing. You know, these, these are people who um, are doing the work that can not only end factory farming as we know it, but really help save our planet. You know, we're moving towards 10 billion people on this planet by 2050. And we cannot sustain ourselves at the current rate. And animal agriculture is not only cruel, but it's just so inefficient. We, we have to change course. So I'm excited to share the stories of some of these innovators in the food space in the book as well. And so going back to the animal free meat, it's essentially cells that create meat without factory farming, without degradation to the environment. Do you think that people will eat this? Do you think, I mean, obviously you do, but do you think that there will be animosity towards it and people say, well, no, I want my cows or whatever? How do you think that'll go? I think that there's always a transition period anytime that something new is introduced to the market space. But I think that humans are incredibly adaptable and our views and opinions are very malleable. So I think that once this reaches the market and people see that it is 
healthier in the sense that traditional animal products, this is incredibly filthy environments. You know, animals are defecating on factory farms, at slaughterhouses. You know, so much of the chicken meat, for example, is is coated in feces. You have Camelobacter, E. coli, Salmonella that is in so many meat products because of the way it's produced. Clean meat, as the name implies, is healthier because you're not facing those same pathogens. So I think it is a superior way of producing the product. Um, and, and I think that's part of why it's important to show people just how cruel and inhumane and unsustainable traditional animal meat is because, you know, it's, it's something that any ethical or moral person would certainly support, but anyone that really just cares about their own health is going to support as well. So I think that, that people will really embrace it fully once it comes to market. I have a question for you guys. Would you guys eat it? I would have it. I have actually eaten it. Oh, okay. So how does it taste? I talk, I talk in the book about um, my involvement with the world's first clean meatball um, produced by Memphis Meats. Memphis Meats also pr- produced the world's first chicken strip and the world's first duck cutlet made out of clean meat. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very small piece that I had, and it had been 16 years since I had eaten meat from animal cells. But I mean, yeah, it's real meat, so it tastes the same. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. The reason why I don't know is because I, and Nathan, you probably know this, the way that they're getting these original cells to start creating these meats out of, is that done in a humane way? Yeah. So, I mean, you essentially have what some people would, would consider like an Adam and Eve type of uh, <laughs> like origin cows or chickens or pigs, for example. And um, <laughs> this, is, this is essentially done with a harmless biopsy. So the animals aren't killed for the initial cells. In theory, these could be rescued animals that are living at an animal sanctuary somewhere. So, Nicole, what do you think? Well, here's my, I think it's great for people that aren't vegan and this is an awesome solution, I think. I don't know if I would eat it because the reasons why I don't eat it aren't only because of the, like it's it's inhumane, you know, because that would solve the problem, right? It's not inhumane. So if that was the only reason why, then I suppose I would. But I also just, we have tons of cancer and, and problems in my family, so I still don't know that I would eat it because based on the research that I've done, I've come to believe that if I reduce or eliminate animal products uh, in my diet, that I'll reduce my risk for cancer. So because of that, I probably still wouldn't eat it. But um, I think it's great that it's out there. Do you guys think that we'll see the end of factory farming in our lifetime? I think we're going to have to. Yeah. Awesome. Yay. Optional. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, as I, as I said, just with the rapid growth in human population in the strain on resources we're going to have to if we're going to still be around as a species and if we're still going to have a livable planet will everyone be totally vegan i'm sure that there'll still be pockets of the, of the world where people are raising animals and eating them in some capacity but i think there's there's no doubt that the vast vast majority of animal agriculture and factory farming will be replaced with cellular agriculture or plant-based alternatives, um, it's really the only the only viable path forward. 
and time is running out. And that's why this is, is so urgent. Um, we need to be proactive in addressing it. Yeah. Do you find that like, as far as converting people, some people, you, you know, they're desensitized to the inhumane way that we treat animals, or they just, it's not that they're desensitized, it's that they're blind to it. They don't look at it. They've never seen it. They don't want to look. I used to be. Yeah, we all used to be, right? I was so scared. So it's like almost like, how do you reach these people? And I guess health is the, it is like a selfish thing that you can do to like kind of entice them because it's the only thing that directly affects them is to really focus on the health. Do you find that that's like the most effective way to kind of bridge people over is to focus on the health benefits or? Well, you know, I think everyone's motivated by something different. Um, Health can certainly be a very compelling conversation to have with people, uh, especially older individuals who really are at a point in their life where they may be experiencing some of the health effects of their diet and lifestyle. A lot of young people, which are really sort of the fastest growing segment of the population who are embracing a vegan diet, um, most young people aren't really thinking about heart disease or osteoporosis or you know cancer yet. So I think for a lot of young people, it is an ethical and, and moral choice that they make, and it's not driven by health. But I think by others, it absolutely is um, driven by health. And I think, you know, with the what the health documentary on Netflix and Forks Over Knives, there are a lot of films that are now really reaching the mainstream that make uh, a compelling case for a plant-based diet. Sort of on this point, it, there was a study done that was quite interesting. They, they took two different groups of individuals. They put them in a room and they gave one group sort of nuts and seeds and vegan food as snacks and the other room they had bologna and cheese and animal products and then they asked them this was just sort of uh, in the background and then they asked the groups their opinions on animal cognition and sentience and do animals matter and do they deserve protection in the group that just happened to have the vegan food given to them in the room scored much higher on their rates about animal sentience and cognition and, and deserving protection than the group that were feasting on meat while they were being asked those questions, which means that the people that do maybe embrace a plant-based diet for health reasons find themselves being much more open and sympathetic and compassionate towards animals because I think they're no longer in a place where they feel that they need to justify what they're doing or they need to you know, compartmentalize their compassion to protect their habits or behavior. It's quite interesting. I can definitely relate to that last thing that you said, just uh, even with my own journey, it started out as a health journey for me. And then after I had already made those choices, then I started being like brave enough to look at it from a compassion standpoint and then feeling very passionate about that. But I think I really didn't even dive into that until I was already into the lifestyle and mostly just because I understand, I mean, talk about PTSD and all that stuff. My psyche is very delicate. I mean, I can't even watch scary movies. So the fact that I would willingly expose myself to this information and it might be graphic and I wouldn't be able to, like, I was just so scared. <laughs> I, I was able to expose myself to the information once I switched over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that the, the study sort of um, indicates that. So, you know, for, for us at Mercy for Animals, we we are an animal protection organization. So certainly our messaging is, is largely focused on compassion and helping animals. And while we do 
these hard hitting investigations to to sh- to really show people what they support when they they choose to eat meat. Let's do a lot of um, work that's focused on the how. You know, it's one thing to to show people the why of changing their lifestyle. It's 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 just as important, if not more important, to talk about the the how to do this. And that's why we have our chooseveg.com website. We have you know cook, vegan cooking videos that we produce because many people want to adopt a healthy, compassionate diet. They just don't know where to start. They're overwhelmed. We are creatures of habit and and comfort. And most of us are not raised vegetarian or vegan. Many people don't have the slightest idea of what their day-to-day would would consist of. So showing people that it's progress over perfection, leaning into diet change, even if you start out with Meatless Monday, anything that pushes you in the the right direction is um, something that should be embraced. Absolutely. And that's how I started too. you know, I started with realizing the detrimental effects on my health that animal based products were having. And making that switch made me healthier. I also have cancer in my family lost both my parents in my 20s, two long battles with cancer, realized I had to change everything so that I didn't suffer the same fate. And then I found out about animal agriculture. And my mind was blown. I was like, I had no idea how bad it was until I was exposed to things like what you guys are doing. And then I was able to, and I took baby steps too, in terms of like giving up one thing at a time, starting with a meatless Monday, all of that stuff. And slowly but surely I came, I actually went too far for a while, to be honest with you. I was like, okay, I have to be like a raw person who only eats raw vegan fruits and vegetables. And that was too extreme. And I realized I needed cooked food and I had to come back. But it's like finding that balance, right? Figuring out what works for you and living that compassionate lifestyle. Also, when you change the way you think about your food, things change, right? You get healthier. When you believe that you're eating food to nourish you and to nourish the planet and loving your food and knowing that it didn't come from a place of abuse and 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 terror, you you know, the, these animals are terrorized to death. Do you think that those hormones aren't in your meat, in your food, you know? Yeah, I mean, these, as you said, these, these animals live and die in fear. You know, it's not just physical torment that these animals face. These are thinking individuals. I was talking to, to Cody, one of our investigators, and you know, it, th- there are stories of bravery and courage and love that happen every day um, behind the closed doors of these factory farms. And Cody told me the story uh, when he was working at a pig factory farm in Pennsylvania a few years ago. And he, uh, on his first day, he walked into the shed where the pregnant sows had just given birth and into these farrowing crates. These are crates that are about two feet wide and the, the sows can't even turn around their their babies can reach them but they can't really comfort them in any other way he he walked into the shed one morning and noticed that one of the the sows had gotten out of her crate and gotten all of her pigs um piglets out behind her and she was roaming the walkway but he then noticed that there were two other sows with their babies that were also running free. And after some investigation, they realized that what had happened was this mother sow had figured out how to use her tongue to unpin this uh, latch that was keeping the door 
shut in her cage. And after she freed herself, she went around and freed these two other sows. Um, with, oh, wow. It was a hero. Not a, I know. I mean, it, was, it, it absolutely was heroism. And it was the act of love, you know, definition of love being this loyal and unselfish, benevolent concern for the good of another. And yeah. that is exactly what this action was of self-liberation. You know, she had the intelligence to figure out how to do this, the foresight to develop a plan, the will for freedom, the heroism to help others and this compassion for them. So this is this is happening on factory farms all the time. And in fact, the workers at this farm told Cody that this has happened before, that pigs do this and that once oh they figure out how to do it, they have to kill the pigs and they killed this brave girl. Um, they took a captive bolt gun and they shot her in the head. Oh my God. You guys. Oh my God. I have chills from that story. Yeah. It's um, this is, you know, this is reality of factory farming. And like you said, the, these animals are in fear. They know that they're going to die. They watch other animals die before them. They can smell the blood and hear the screams. And just like conversation earlier about, the workers having PTSD in slaughterhouses, I think that everyone has to ask themselves, what are my values? What are my core values? What matters to me in life? And if kindness or empathy or mercy or love or doing the right thing is anywhere on that list, the core value, we just cannot support animal agriculture. And we really, uh, I think, have a moral obligation to do everything that we can to help these animals who are so weak and vulnerable and at our mercy, we are in a position where we hold all of the power and how we choose to exercise that power, whether we use that to exploit and kill or whether we use that to help and nurture and rescue and protect, I think says a lot about who we are as people. It says a lot about our humanity and it says a lot about the world that we want to live in. All right, to hear the full interview with Milo Runkel from Mercy for Animals, go back and listen to episode 177 of Food Heals. This Food Heals Shocking Stories series is brought to you by our friends over at Organifi, our favorite line of superfoods. As always, you can save 20% off over at OrganifiShop.com slash Food Heals. Now let's hear from CEO Mae Steigler. So May, from the greens to the reds to the raspberry lemonade to the chocolates to the turmeric flavored powders, how do these Organifi products get these delicious flavors without adding a bunch of crap? Like, you know, like so often we know that things taste good because there's all these added sugars and things we don't want to put in our body, especially when we're trying to be healthy. So I would love to hear how you formulate the flavors and what is your favorite flavored product that you just can't live without? (laughs) So three key things, lots of product iteration and product development. So we take our time with ensuring that what we make tastes amazing. You know, we are consumers of it ourselves. My family is. I will hear it if things don't taste good. Um, and uh, it's all whole food based. So we do not use synthetic vitamins or um, anything that is not whole food based in the product. So it really comes down to ingredient quality. And we take sourcing incredibly seriously, all organic, glyphosate residue free, um, top quality ingredients, just as if you were, go to, if you were to go to a great restaurant. 
you'd get great tasting food because of um, their quality sourcing of ingredients. And simple dishes don't need lots of salt and sugar to taste great. Same as our formulation. So we use really high quality sourced ingredients. We take a lot of care in doing that. And the blends of these whole foods are designed to taste great naturally. And so while the only sweetener that we use only in some products is monk fruit, which is actually um, still a whole food. And it's focused on um, the benefit is not being uh, a blood sugar spiking sugar and mm-hmm. a really, really healthy one for those that are concerned with metabolic uh, disorders, diabetes and blood sugar control in general. And we use that really sparingly. So we really focus on adding mint, um, lemon, um, raspberry, uh, really bright, uh, really well-formulated ingredients, almost like recipes instead is how we look at it. It's a really key part of what makes our products taste delicious and something that we really pride ourselves with and taking the time and care to do well. And then you asked what my favorite products are, and this rotates a lot. Um, and I will say that my absolute favorite are pure and red, and I love blending the two of them. And I do that mm. mix as a pre-workout uh, for my pickleball playing that I do all the time. Um, and so it's my favorite <laughs> pre-workout combo right now, really bright and lemony um, between the two of those products. And I love the pure for the mental cognitive support. Uh, it actually has some clinical research uh, on the key ingredient, um, coffee berry, and it helps with improving reaction speed. So really great for sport performance. And I love blending that with the red. It just, I literally mix it. I don't blend this, by the way. I mix it in a shaker bottle, uh, just shaking Mm -hmm. it up. And the red for the beets for circulation. So improve circulation while exercising. And of course, the cordyceps and rhodiola for endurance and energy without needing to take a pre-workout or or caffeine or anything in the afternoon. Those are my two favorite right now. And they taste delicious. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to have to try that combo of combining them. And I'll, I just have to share my favorites with you um, is I love the gold because it tastes like a turmeric tea. And oh my gosh. And not to, ma- not to mention the health benefits, but just on flavor alone, that one, the Harmony chocolate and the um, raspberry lemonade flavor of Glow, I would say those are my top three flavor profiles that I, I crave. Like my body is like, Where, I, need, I need my raspberry lemonade. I need my chocolate. Like I'm so excited and can't live without them. And so good post-dinner. So our, our favorite evening routine is, uh, you know, a cup of gold after dinner instead of having a kind of dessert cravings. And then you can swap in Harmony for that as like a healthy hormone balancing hot cocoa instead. So good and great for beating cravings post-meal and just as like a beautiful evening routine. I love it. Amazing. All right, Food Heals Nation. Well, go get your Organifi. Of course, you get 20% off as a member of our beloved Food Heals Nation. That's all at OrganifiShop.com slash Food Heals. Thank you, May. So, so good. My treat. Thank you. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to actually start using their $39.99 a month gym membership. If you experience any of these symptoms, Snapchat your trainer immediately.